Live from Your Mind Productions presents On the Threshold. Episode 4, Civilized. Welcome back to the Glazer Files. I hope everyone is keeping safe in these strange times. I also hope you won't miss my philosophical ramblings for today. We've got an interesting document to cover today, and it's a long but intriguing read from a contact of mine in the intelligence community. You heard that right. We're getting into the thrilling world of international spy games and martinis shaken not stirred. Okay, that's definitely an exaggeration, and this doesn't look like any of your Bond films, though it is British. It's an 1887 report to an official in Britain's home office, the predecessor of their police and intelligence establishment. Of all people, it's written by a physician named Edwin Powell, and yes, that's his actual name. I can finally mention someone on this podcast without using a pseudonym. Anyway, based on my research, Dr. Powell seems to be an interesting figure in that most of his medical theories were quite regressive even for the Victorian era, being a lifelong advocate against germ theory until his death in 1903 at the age of 74. While I can't vouch for the truth of the following document, I have at least been able to verify the existence of the Brown family and their eventual fate. Finally, when I read this, I can't help but hear it narrated in a pretentious Oxfordian accent, which I wouldn't dare deprive you of hearing recreated. Report by Dr. Edwin Powell, to whom it may concern, within the Home Office, regarding the tragic recent events of the Noble House of Brown and the unidentified organism beneath their estate. December 5th, 1887. Anno Domini. Given my proximity to the Brown family during their recent calamity and my witnessing what I believe to be its causes, I have been asked to compile this report for your perusal. The preponderance of this report consists of my journal entries from the corresponding dates, beginning with my first examination of Baron Erasmus Brown upon his return to his sister's townhouse, and concluding with what I contend to be the murder of Professor Anderson and attempted murder of myself for our research in what I believe to be the inciting organism. However, I will periodically addend to these entries my post-hoc commentary, in light of my greater knowledge of the whole course of events. August 3rd, 1887. My early morning appointment with Lady Elizabeth Blackwood for her pelvic massage successfully achieved a satisfying paroxysm for which she and her husband were, as always, most grateful. 
In the mid-morning, I heeded the request of Lady Alexandra Brown to attend to her brother, Baron Erasmus Brown, at her flat in Brompton. I had initially been delighted to hear that the Baron had returned from his errant wanderings indulging his decadent whims, even if the necessity of my presence implied that his excesses in opium and unwholesome liaisons had finally taken their toll on the health of the misguided young man. Lady Brown was cordial, as always, upon our meeting, though I could tell that her iron mask of resolve was further slipping with Erasmus's return. I can only imagine the resentment she must feel towards her brother for so fecklessly disregarding his responsibilities to the family's dignity and finances forcing a lady such as herself to stave off destitution by pawning heirlooms and providing legal counsel to the desperate, thus ensuring her deepening dearth of marriage prospects. But I could only muster so much contempt for the boy. He contended with demons of his own, and I was soon to learn how tightly they gripped him. Erasmus's state was truly wretched. Alexandra informed me that he had been comatose upon being returned home, but in the last few hours he had frightened the servants by standing in the middle of the guest room making peculiar buzzing vocalizations while acknowledging no one. As I arrived in the room for his examination, I confirmed these observations, and also noted that his eyes darted feverishly around the room, as if seeing no physical objects, but monitoring a legion of threats visible only to himself. He remained unresponsive to all external stimuli until I touched him, to which he reacted with attempted violence, striking at the air in a way that unbalanced him and brought him to the floor where he continued to flail. I sedated him for his safety, and with the servant's help, returned him to the bed. In further consultation, Lady Brown explained that her brother had been entirely impossible to contact for the previous three months, until having been conveyed to the house semi-conscious the previous evenings by Mr. Mylan Adaman. When Lady Brown offered him a reward, Mr. Adaman claimed a family vase within the drawing room where they were sitting at the time. I concluded that Mr. Adaman might have further information of use to the Baron's diagnosis. Fortunately, he had left with her a calling card, noting his current address, and so I resolved to visit him post-haste. Mr. Adaman is a singularly eccentric individual. He is a modern Hercules, a disciple of the new physical culture movement for using strength exercises to develop and sculpt one's physique in imitation of the statues of classical heroes, and then demonstrating their prowess in muscle display performances to eager crowds. But this is only one of his peculiarities. When we arrived at his residence, he was drinking a strange concoction from the very antique vase gifted to him by Lady Brown the night before. 
He insisted that the potion aided his exercise activities and had been most enthusiastically prescribed by a colleague similarly taken with the pursuit. So drawn was he to consuming this beverage that he brought the full vase with him as the three of us returned to Lady Brown's residence. Mr. Adaman had concluded a public competition with his fellows on the green of Belgrave Square when he came across the Baron wandering the streets as if sleepwalking. Amidst his somnolent mumbling, the Baron seemed to beseech his aid in guiding him to his sister's address, which he offered, along with vague implications that he was being pursued. When we returned to Erasmus's bedside, he was unconscious, allowing a more thorough physical examination, from which it was clear that the previous months had not been kind, with a largely skeletal frame typical of opium addicts and faded signs of physical trauma suggestive of fisticuffs. Adaman himself noted a series of scars on Erasmus's skull that appeared to have been a careful incision, though if it had been made with a weapon intended to harm him, it would certainly have been lethal. During our examinations, Alexandra dealt with callers at the door. The callers were constables who claimed to be seeking to question the Baron in regards to a murder investigation. Lady Alexandra took umbrage at the officer's impropriety for demanding such information from a member of the aristocracy, and the discussion grew loud and uncivil until she asserted her family's noble rights and declared that the Baron would answer their questions at his own convenience when he was well. Thus concluding the matter, Alexandra stormed up to her brother, demanding to know his whereabouts for the last several months and whether he had any part in a murder, to which the sleeping Erasmus replied only with silence. Her wrath spent, she declared her intention to investigate his known associates and flop houses of routine, requesting that Mr. Adaman escort her, offering a retainer which he accepted. I remained to monitor Erasmus's condition, which evolved most curiously over the next several hours as he drifted through varying degrees of lucidity. In his moments of greater clarity, he would explain that it felt like he was being tossed and roiled by the currents through different depths of the sea. When he could, he would try to swim up to gulping breaths of reality. But his experiences when he was drawn back down were sufficiently alien that he struggled to describe them. I gave him a quill and paper and suggested that he turn his admiral gifts for poetry to express them, which seemed to give him focus. I will not butcher his prose by attempting to recreate it here. But in what I read of them, I was entranced by his depictions of truly bizarre vistas, dominated by presences so strange that it was impossible to determine whether they would be best classified as 
animals, automata, or natural forces. So enthralled was I by his descriptions that I only took notice when he began to scream in the bleakest terror. He was unresponsive, having sunk once more into the depths of unreality. After other methods were unsuccessful, I resorted to a sedative, but by then he had been screaming for several minutes, and it was not long before a patrolman came to the door, and I had to explain the commotion that had upset this genteel neighborhood. Soon after, Alexandra and Mylon returned smelling faintly of gunpowder and with a small splattering of blood dispersing her dress. Though out of propriety, I declined to inquire as to why. Alexandra explained that according to Erasmus's intimate acquaintance Parnell, Erasmus and two of their mutual friends had gotten into a raucous argument which had broken up their circle two months ago, though Parnell had not understood the cause, only repeated references to the American and to the restaurant The Criterion, where this American had met with each of them in turn. By this point, it was seven o'clock, and I realized that I was quite famished, and the Criterion was as good a source of nourishment as any, and if it should provide further answers, all the better. As luck would have it, upon my inquiry, my waiter told me in hushed tones that a broad-shouldered, cigar-chomping man of American accent and disposition regularly reserved the restaurant's private dining room from meals with another individual. The identity of the other individual would vary, but their nervousness prior to the meetings and exhausted resignation afterwards remained constant. The waitstaff suspected this American to be a blackmailer, and I am inclined to agree, particularly given my suspicions of the Baron's predilections for male intimacy. I will have to inform Alexandra of my findings in the morning. Addendum. Though impossible to confirm without him in custody, I now suspect Mylan Adaman may have been far more knowledgeable of these matters than he appeared at the time. If so, then his story about how he found Baron Brown may be suspect, perhaps a means to gain the family's trust and enter into their confidence. If this theory is correct, I have yet to decide whether the vase he acquired upon his first meeting with Alexandra is of some significance to his plans, or was merely part of his feigned eccentricity. August 4th, 1887 I arrived at Lady Alexandra Brown's townhouse this morning, and informed her of my findings at the Criterion, to which she nodded grimly. When we checked on Erasmus, he was still in bed, but he was more lucid than I had seen him since his arrival, sitting upright and adding new flourishes to his poetry. He confirmed to us that he had indeed been blackmailed. Two of his intimate acquaintances 
had signed written witness statements of his indecent acts, which Erasmus said is sufficient for criminal conviction. He believed that his acquaintances in turn had been blackmailed or bribed by this American. However, the blackmailer's fee was far stranger than simple currency. Instead, Erasmus was to be taken into the custody of this American's compatriots. For the sake of the Brown family name, he agreed to do so. He was held captive for weeks in what he believed to be the basement of a hospital, given that medical supplies were regularly wheeled in on carts from above. His cellmates were other prisoners, primarily from the underclasses, beggars, vagrants, travelers, those who would not be missed. There, they were subject to an experimental brain surgery, which left its recipients dazed and incoherent at best. He suspected that his own surgery had had one of the better results, leaving him conscious much of the time. His captors would regularly question him and his fellow captives about their experiences while he was under the effects of this delirium, as if to clinically catalogue their delusions. At some point, several rough-looking gentlemen broke into the facility. Their freeing of the captives seemed to only be a secondary consideration to their theft of a number of large crates dripping with liquid. Erasmus and the others fled into the streets, but the exertion after such a long sedentary period overcame him, and he drifted into the fugue state in which Adamon found him. As Erasmus explained the story, Mr. Adaman himself soon arrived at the townhouse, apparently at Lady Brown's request. She insisted that the three of us were to make statements at Scotland Yard in regards to finding Erasmus and clearing him of any involvement in this alleged murder. When I asked if we were to report the kidnapping, she said that we were to handle the matter discreetly for the sake of family dignity. In contrast to their apparent urgency yesterday to question Baron Brown, the police seemed to consider our statements a low priority, and we waited at the station for an hour before we were ushered in to talk with detectives in separate rooms. I explained what I knew to Detective Sergeant Aaron Nevin, who seemed to have lost all but nominal interest in the case, if he ever had it. He said a known criminal blackguard, whose name I don't recall, had been killed three days ago in South London in a fight over a card game, and that several witnesses had named the Baron as the man holding the knife. When our interviews finished, Detective Chief Inspector McCrory told us that Baron Brown could provide his own statement at his convenience. I was puzzled as to the rapid shift to the constabulary's attitude from urgently insisting on questioning the Baron for murder to treating the whole affair as a minor bureaucratic necessity to be casually brushed aside. When I asked Lady Brown about the matter, she expressed her own bafflement and insisted that she had not exerted any more pressure than the known status of her family's name. 
I quickly arranged lunch with Albert Davidson at the Oxford and Cambridge Club to learn what light he might shed from his position in the home office. We exchanged pleasantries on the latest affairs of our classmates before I inquired about Baron Brown's case, which he said he would investigate. I also asked him to look into any mass exoduses of the mentally unsound onto the streets from a hospital near Belgrave Square on the night of August 2nd. We concluded with dinner plans for that evening. At my appointment with Sir Thomas, I prescribed a walkabout holiday away from London's miasma to cure his neuralgia and persistent cough. I treated Lady Arnold with pelvic massage and an antimonial for costiveness. I found at dinner that Albert had worked quickly. He informed me that the rough Irish lower officers had been overzealous in pursuing the murder investigation to the Browns' door, and had since been reprimanded and reined in by their more cultivated superiors forecasting aspersions on a noble. Even so, he recommended that the Browns holiday outside of London for a time, while Albert made sure that matters were handled properly. I thanked him for his discreet assistance, which I assured him I would share with the Browns. The Baron's sensitive state suggests that he would benefit from a holiday with my medical assistance in the event of a relapse, and I would enjoy a time in the Shires as well. I will be sure to suggest such a course to the Browns. I believe that they have an estate in the Midlands. Addendum Tomeo de Neos et Dona Forentes Later confirmation of the Baron's captivity at Westminster Hospital rules out his supposed involvement in the murder in South London of which the police accused him, which inspires questions as to who planted the evidence of those witnesses and why they would do so. Regardless, the events of August 5th are of little consequence here, so I shall omit them. August 6th, 1887. Bolsover Castle can scarcely be described as more than a ruin. The central keep is kept only from complete decrepitude through the efforts of the elderly groundkeeper and his wife, while the surrounding walls and structures have collapsed into rubble or teeter perilously close to doing so. I fear that the family's finances may be even worse than I thought, especially given our dinner tonight of onions and potatoes. Oh, how their father would shrivel with shame that such fodder would be offered to guests at his table. I plan to spend little time within these crumbling walls, and to coax Erasmus from them as often as possible for the sake of his recovery. For the former, at least, I ventured into the village. It's not quite Arcadia, thanks to the debris left from now silent quarries, 
but it is a refreshingly quiet little hamlet centered around a marketplace and a small gasworks. My perambulations led me to the beautiful little church where I had a most delightful conversation with the vicar, a Reverend Thomas Charles Hill, a truly learned and pleasant gentleman. To our great fortune, it seems that we have arrived just in time for the church's feast in honor of their patron saint, Lawrence. How wonderful! I pleasantly anticipate the children's flower service tomorrow. My conversation with town physician Dr. Clarence Adams was less encouraging as his claim to medical education is from some alleged academy in Scotland. When our discussion of the town's ailments turned to Hippocrates, I discovered that he hadn't even been taught it in the original Greek. At least he was able to suggest a mineral spring to the north that might be good for Erasmus, even if it is evidently in disrepair. Through further town gossip, I learned that Mr. Adaman had apparently aroused some sort of impromptu parade through the marketplace, invigorating the town around grandiose promises of how the Brown family would revitalize Bolsifer's languishing economic prospects. It would appear that neither Erasmus nor Alexandra had any part in making such promises, but thanks to Adaman's pronouncements, the town's adoration and expectations of the family have never been greater, likely greater than the two siblings can bear. The celebration drew the ire of the town constable, a Mr. Norton Wiggs, evidently for its violation of some local ordinance, who then attempted to arrest Adaman. The witnesses here surely exaggerate, but generally claim that Adaman evaded the constable with a grace worthy of the finest ballerino before disappearing into the mid-morning fog. That afternoon, when an understandably embarrassed Constable Wiggs tracked Mr. Adaman to the castle, Alexandra defended him as her dutifully appointed bodyguard, a role defending him from Wiggs' prosecution, much to the constable's frustration. He... I've just returned from calming Erasmus down from another screaming fit. For the most part, he seemed more stable since we relocated to Bolsifer, so it's possible that this may have merely been a nightmare, though it must have been a very intense one, for it took some time for Alexandra and I to rouse him back to sense. When we asked what he had experienced, he asked his sister, Do you remember when we snuck into that slaughterhouse? He said that the smell and sound could only be compared to that, but that the slaughterers were men in blood-stained robes in an abattoir with human victims tossed into a pit below. Though I knew better than to mention it, I couldn't help but think of the barbaric rites of the Phoenicians who had colonized these very hills, and who had sacrificed their newborns en masse to satiate their demon god Moloch. Cartago stelinda est, 
indeed. I will not sleep well tonight. Addendum. This was the first time I took note of Adamon's ability to exert such incredible control over a crowd. His mere presence in Bolsifer alone is something of an enigma. The Browns were in dire financial straits as it was, so their hiring him when he has served them no clear purpose suggests the mesmerizing quality he must have held over them. Even then, he was preparing the town for his next act. That's all we have time for today, but don't worry. I'll read the rest of it next episode. In case you're wondering, no, the Phoenicians never colonized the British Isles. That was just a popular historical theory that some of the English believed at the time. Apparently, they couldn't imagine that the locals had built the castles and stone circles dotting the landscape. The mass sacrifices by parents of their own children, though? 20th century historians declared that had just been Roman propaganda against their enemies in Carthage. Archaeologists since then have concluded that they were all too real. I wonder if those 20th century historians preferred to believe that mass murder was a historical aberration unique to their own century, carried out only by fascist and communist regimes, that some select members of humanity had just taken a slight misstep off the noble path on which we normally remain. I guess that's easier than accepting that the noble path is a lie, that the potential for such cruelty is intrinsic to us. When Dr. Powell shivered at the ancient barbarism of child sacrifice, I wonder if he spared a thought for the thousands of children dying in horrific factories and coal mines in his own country to create the wealth he could enjoy on his comfortable vacation. On the Threshold is produced and distributed by Live From Your Mind Productions under an attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. This episode was written and performed by Gregory Moss. Thank you for listening. Clanging of 
the heavy steel door on the next landing grounded out briefly. The occupants were all sedated in their chains and cages. They made no sound, though they may have wished to. The scraping sounds resonated through the bars, but it originated from yet further above. The stairs brought me higher. The walls writhed, pulsing with the pale, viscous substance that they excreted. I had no choice but to continue.